Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Welcome everybody to CSIS. My name is Moises Randam. I'm the, future of, uh, the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. Uh, due to increased safety concerns regarding COVID-19, this event is only being webcasted live, and it will be subsequently be available on demand uh, through our website. So thank you for your understanding. Um, before we start, I want to thank Ariana Cohan, who is our America's program coordinator, who is pushing all of us to, uh, forward on this issue. She's been an incredible force in our program to make sure that we're mindful and take action to include more women into our events and projects. So thank you, Ariana. I also want to thank CSIS Smart Women and Smart Power Initiative, including their director, Beverly Kirk, for joining us in today's event. And lastly, but not least, I want to thank our panelists today and our keynote speaker, Henrietta Refor, for the leadership and, 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 and for speaking about these important issues with us today at CSIS. Uh, we're discussing today a crucial uh, topic that hasn't been on top of the agenda for many leaders in Venezuela and outside of Venezuela, and has not been appropriately addressed by many humanitarian organizations as well. We want to discuss how girls and women have been disproportionately affected by the humanitarian crisis in, in Venezuela and what's being done to address gender-specific issues. We, we also want to discuss the impact that women have been um, when, when we include women in politics, especially in situations when there's peace negotiations and conflict, right? Um, as, as we highlighted in our recent commentary, humanitarian crises are never gender neutral. And, and, and the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is not an exception. So this is why we're trying to shed light on this issue. We want to understand better how women and girls are being affected and how can we uh, improve their life and, and, and help uh, to, to, for, for all these huge population in Venezuela, which is half of the country's population, to have better access to health and, and to basic commodities, including in political um, positions, right? The run of show today, um, we're going to hear briefly from our UNICEF Executive Director, Henrietta Refor. She, she has a five-minute video remarks um, about this event. After, she, after we hear that video, we will follow up with the first panel. Uh, the, the first panel will focus on the, um, uh, the humanitarian impact on the, on the female Venezuelan population. We are not going to have a coffee break. We're just going to switch to the second panel right away. And the second panel will focus on, on the positive implications of including women in, in politics in Venezuela, which will be moderated by our own expert, um, Beverly Kirk. Um, before, um, yeah, with no further ado, I would like to introduce Harrietta Refor. She has spent her career since day one advocating for economic development, education, health, and humanitarian assistance, and has championed the rights of women and girls um, throughout her career. And she also previously served as a global co chair of the Asia Society. She's a former administrator of USAID and is the director, was a director of the United States Foreign Assistance. She was the 37th director of the United States Mint and was awarded the Treasury highest honor, the Alexander Hamilton Award in 2005. Among other impressive achievements, she also served in our CSIS board until she was selected to lead UNICEF in 2018. 
Here are Henrietta Ford's remarks. I wish I could join you in person for your discussion on women in Venezuela. Thank you to CSIS for shining a light on this important issue. Two days ago was International Women's Day, a day we celebrate women and girls, their achievements, their voices, their rights. But it's also a day when we remind ourselves of the daily challenges that women and girls face around the world. Your report reminds us that humanitarian situations are never gender neutral. Women are disproportionately affected by food and water shortages, lack of nutrition and vaccinations, violence, abuse and trafficking, sexually transmitted diseases, HIV. They face threats to their health and safety that men never face. Maternal mortality rates are on the rise. They have trouble accessing contraceptives and hygiene products. One in every four babies is born to a teenaged mother. And girls and women are particularly vulnerable to the country's economic downturn and political instability. Rising prices for food, medicine, and transportation, fuel shortages, power outages, less access to clean water, lower purchasing power for families, and shrinking access to quality health and education services. As the people of Venezuela live through this crisis, UNICEF and our partners are all doing what we can, immunizing millions of children last year from diseases like polio, diphtheria, and measles, providing access to safe water for over 815,000 people, reaching a quarter of a million children with education materials, including those translated into indigenous languages, and scaling up school feeding programs to end malnutrition and keep children in school. But we're also putting a special emphasis on the needs of girls, women, and mothers. This year, we plan on reaching more than 150,000 children and women with protection programs, including counseling for victims of gender-based violence. We've established a nutrition database in 16 states to better target our treatment for malnutrition, especially for children and lactating mothers. We're working with local community groups run by women, like the YU Ethnic Group and others. Together, we're identifying children in need and providing information and services to help them. And we've teamed up with UNFPA to provide integrated services to women and girls in places they frequent. For example, in Tachira State, the San Antonio bus terminal on the Colombian border is the busiest in the country. UNICEF and UNFPA partners are there every day, working with women and girls to provide supplies like menstrual hygiene kits and information on how to avoid unwanted pregnancies to keep them safe and healthy. But as we find new ways to serve these women and children, the humanitarian needs are rapidly outpacing our resources. Seven million people, including 3.2 million children, urgently need education, water, health, and protection. And 5.3 million migrants and refugees have left the country, making long and perilous journeys. 
As we call for a lasting political solution, UNICEF is also calling for an additional $218 million in funds to support these women and children inside Venezuela and those leaving. Despite the challenges, we believe a better, more stable future for Venezuela is possible. UNICEF is counting on partners like you to continue shedding light on the humanitarian needs of the most vulnerable, especially women and girls. As we mark the 25th anniversary of the UN World Conference for Women in Beijing, we must remind ourselves that women and girls are critical to a stable, peaceful future for every country, including the women and girls of Venezuela. Let's support them together. Thank you. Great. Thank you again. Um, okay, so on our first panel, we're going to, again, focus on the humanitarian impact of women and girls and other vulnerable populations. And how can we do, right, as an international community and humanitarian assistance organizations, um, how can we provide and differentiate our assistance appropriately to these populations that are very vulnerable, right? And for that, we have an excellent panel today. We have Rebecca Alvarado. She's a foreign affairs officer with the U.S. Department of State. She currently serves as a Venezuelan policy officer at PRM, overseeing humanitarian assistance for Venezuelan refugees and migrants in 16 countries in the region. Thank you, Rebecca, for being here. We have Laura Aragon. She serves as a deputy director and gender advisor for the Pan American Development Foundation. She founded and is currently the board president of MUKIRA a women-led grassroots organization that works to improve gender equality and prevent violence against women in Mexico. And lastly but not least, we have Tatiana Bertolucci. She's the regional director for CARE USA, Latin America and the Caribbean region. She has worked in Spain, Indonesia, and Brazil of issues on gender, on gender justice, among other issues. So thank you, Tatiana, for being here. Um, and, and, you know, I'm just going to throw a question for all of you, and, and it's, why is a gender-based perspective relevant in the humanitarian context in Venezuela? We're going to start with you, Rebecca. Sure. Uh, thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Moises and CSIS, uh, first and foremost, for organizing this important event uh, to shed light on the critical impacts the humanitarian crisis is having on Venezuelan women, children, and other vulnerable groups. So why a gender focus on a humanitarian assistance uh, for Venezuelans, um, both who've been forcibly displaced and those who are enduring the humanitarian crisis inside Venezuela? Well, as, as we know, uh, now more than 5 million Venezuelans have been uh, forcibly displaced throughout the region. And um, as we're seeing the political and economic crisis inside Venezuela deepen, so are the increased vulnerabilities uh, that we're seeing among uh, the Venezuelan population. Um, and so, as is in most cases of um, situations of forced displacement, it is usually the most vulnerable, um, including um, children, women, but also the elderly, um, persons with disabilities, indigenous populations, who are the most vulnerable to situations of family separation, gender-based violence, uh, human trafficking, uh, abuse, and other forms of exploitation. Yes. Thank you, Thank you Rebecca. Thanks. Laura, same question to you. Why, why this is important? Why having a gender-specific focus is important on this context? Right. Well, first of all, only women can get pregnant. So the lack of access to contraceptives 
or deficient maternal health affects them uniquely. Under normal, under normal conditions, women already face uh, disrespect, mistreatment in healthcare facilities, particularly during pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum. We call it obstetric violence. The risk increases when women are migrants because of the stigma, lack of documents, lack of health insurance, language barriers, and perceived lower status. Last year, the Pan American Development Foundation, where I work, we provided um, healthcare services to Venezuelan women in Colombia, and we witnessed firsthand that most Venezuelans did not have any prenatal control. Amnesty International estimates that eight, eight out of 10 Venezuelans did not see any health worker during their pregnancy. And this is very important because prenatal care can give women a positive pregnancy experience, but also for many other reasons. It can help reduce um, stillbirths and pregnancy complications. It serves to detect life-threatening conditions of, such as preeclampsia. Uh, you can also detect sexual transmitted diseases such as HIV and then uh, prevent mother-to-infant transmission. Yet thousands of Venezuelans women are missing prenatal care. Seeking a healthcare professional during pregnancy is important for women to also learn how to identify an emergency and seek care. Mm -hmm. And the World Health Organization identifies three critical time points uh, that, are, that affect maternal mortality, maternal mortality. One is seeking care. And seeking care in Venezuela under current conditions is very different than when we think about seeking care in other countries. It doesn't mean commuting to your nearest healthcare facility, no. It means looking and maybe sometimes fleeing the country to actually seek for care. And due to gender roles, women bear the responsibility of raising children and caring for the elderly or disabled. So in other words, women need to plan how to leave the country, cross the borders without any documents, which entails tremendous logistical challenges and emotional distress. We leave some of the children behind. We take some of the children with us while being pregnant. Who's going to watch the children while we're in labor? And reaching care and receiving appropriate care is also that women face uniquely. So reaching care is also a major barrier that we found when they were in Colombia and other countries where they migrate because they don't have the right documentation. So they're like sent to different hospitals and healthcare facilities. And then finally receiving care. In other words, maternal mortality is um, increasing, has increased according to official data from Venezuela. The last one was in 2006. And women should not die for birthing a child. So progress in healthcare is meaningless for women if it is not put to use to save their lives. Maternal health should definitely be a priority, but it should not be only the focus. We need to recognize also women's rights to be free from unwanted pregnancies. And I don't know if I should touch about unwanted pregnancies briefly. Yes, yeah, sure. So, the other important things when we talk about contraceptives and unwanted pregnancies is that no one should be forced to a pregnancy. The UN Working Group to End Discrimination Against Women in the Law and in Practice warned about something they call the instrumentalization of women's bodies. They define this instrumentalization of women's bodies as the subjection of women's natural biological functions to a politicized patriarchal agenda. It is time that women's decisions over our own bodies matter more than the decisions of male politicians. And we know what works. We know from data that long-term contraceptives, or that they have a long name, they're also called LARC, but they're basically intrauterine devices and hormonal implants. Um, 
last for years and are reversible, and are reversible. they're underutilized in Latin America and the Caribbean, even though they are safe, highly effective, independent of user compliance, and sometimes in these situations in a region that's characterized by the very high rates of sexual violence, very high rates of teenage pregnancy, these long-term um, reversible contraceptives can provide a cost-effective solution. They cost less than $100 to protect women for years for unwanted pregnancies. Uh, recent research from PAHO found that the, the, despite their efficiency, they're currently being underused. So first, we need to recognize what can be done, recognize that women and men have different biological and reproductive functions and require a different treatment. This includes we need to increase investment in maternal health supplies, personnel. We need to recognize the different effects for women and men of gender roles and as unpaid care providers. So we need to think about providing subsidies for childcare facilities in destination countries for migrant women so that we can alleviate the burden of unpaid care and expand their opportunities. And finally, we need to make procurement processes in humanitarian aid exclusively to respond to women's needs. Because we know that when we take a humanitarian aid like approach on gender, which is kind of like the traditional approach, then we do not see these needs that women have. And so we need this investment in maternal health. We need to recognize gender roles and unpaid care that women provide, provide childcare facilities and recognize how women care for the elderly, the disabled, and facilitate their lives. And finally, uh, give them long-term reversible contraceptives for the women who desire to have those. Yeah, thank you, Laura. I, I want to go back to that point. Uh, I think it's important, right, like to why, why humanitarian assistance should be probably focused on these specific needs. And so let's go back to that, but Tatiana, um, thanks again. Uh, just going to put the question, the same question, why a gender-specific approach is relevant in this discussion? And I think that's, thank you for bringing up that question because I think it's one of those invisible matters when we do humanitarian responses, everybody was saying. First of all, we need to recognize that women and girls are more, more vulnerable in humanitarian situations, which is why we should have a gender approach. We are, CARE is currently operating in Colombia, Peru, um, Ecuador, and also inside of Venezuela through partners. And we have conducted in all of the countries um, rapid gender analysis, which is one of our tools for, for diagnosing specific, gender specific or women's specific needs. Um, and what we are seeing is that this crisis is a major gender crisis. Uh, we are seeing that because some of uh, what um, my colleague just mentioned on, on uh, maternal health, but also because of high exposure of, of women and girls to gender-based violence and, and sexual violence um, during this crisis. And it is one in, in, in the sense of a normalization of gender-based violence as part of the, the issue and situation, both inside of Venezuela, but also in the countries that um, women are flying to. Um, but, uh, and, and also as uh, being exposed for human trafficking, um, using sexual, uh, transactional sex as a coping mechanism throughout the journey of migrating or uh, being displaced, being victims of forced sex as a way of uh, 
um, having to, to cope with the, the needs they have on, on uh, food, medical assistance, or even just for crossing borders mm -hmm. throughout. And those are, those are vulnerabilities that men usually do not have. Nevertheless, we have identified that young men are also being quite threatened as well as the LGBTQ um, position, um, uh, populations, which also should have um, a higher attention on, on this crisis. I think the other, the other important um, thing that we need to, to focus on when we discuss um, the gender roles and the gender norms is that women, because men have usually fled first out of Venezuela, mm -hmm. they are assuming new roles. So if they were usually the ones responsible for all of the care or the reproductive roles, they are now also being the, the ones assuming uh, the responsibility for providing for the families, trying to find uh, resources to cope with uh, the needs of all of the family and not only themselves. Usually when that happens, they are prioritizing taking care of their families but and not themselves, which means they are most, more vulnerable again. But also they have more difficult access to jobs, to um, economic resources, and also to justice and, and access to mm -hmm. healthcare when they need. So again, it's a very specific vulnerability that impact, impacts women differently. Um, my final comment is on, on, on that matter and, and some of these vulnerabilities is that um, in one way, it's important and interesting that women are taking new roles and which means that many times they are assuming um, economic, being economic empowered, for instance, but we are not seeing a sustainability out of that. It's based on need and not based on mm -hmm. uh, empowerment process. So there is no, uh, th there are some people discussing it, are gender norms uh, changing on the, because as a result of this crisis. Well, we are seeing women being pressured and assuming more and more responsibilities, but that doesn't mean gender norms are are changing, and again, that's another issue that we need to, to pay attention to. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That, that's another important point. Um, okay, so we have a lot of elements here to cover now, um, and, and Rebecca, I want to come back to you because I, I think, Tatiana, you, you brought the, the, the gender-based violence issue, which I think is, is a relevant one. No? In last year, in 2019, Rebecca, we saw an increase of 50% of femicides in the country. Uh, compared to the previous year, which is significant, despite that the Venezuelan population is shrinking, right? Everybody's leaving the country. Uh, so that, that's something that maybe Tatiana or, or Laura can help us to, to shed light what's going on internally in Venezuela. But Rebecca, you're covering 16 countries in the region. And my question to you is, how this gender-based violence um, affects vulnerable individuals, right, that are in the move, who are moving to different countries. Have you seen that same increased tendency of increased violence on based on gender in, in, the, in, the, in the refugee migration population at all? Uh, yes, thank you for, for that uh, very important question, Moises. And, and yes, in fact, um, we, uh, the United States, uh, through the humanitarian assistance that we're providing, as you mentioned, in 16 countries in the region, um, and that includes you know, countries who are hosting the vast majority of uh, Venezuelan refugees, including Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, and Chile, but also the Caribbean, uh, which I will get to in a short while. Uh, we are seeing a, a sharp increase in uh, 
instances of gender-based violence, uh, human trafficking, other abuse, uh, exploitation, including labor exploitation, for example, that is affecting uh, women in particular, uh, but other vulnerable groups as well of Venezuelans. Um, and so, one example um, of the work that our partners are doing in Brazil, for example, in the northern uh, border state of Roraima, uh, UN Women, um, the uh, UN entity uh, for gender equality and empowerment of women, uh, they're assisting um, uh, vulnerable uh, women there, um, who many of whom are living on the streets of Roraima. Um, and are suffering from serious health issues, uh, but also exploitation. Um, and so providing them with uh, much needed psychosocial assistance as well as emergency health care, but also um, economic empowerment opportunities. And I think that's a key point um, that, uh, to speak to Tatiana's uh, comment about the need for sustainability mm -hmm. um, in our assistance. It's providing that immediate humanitarian assistance to attend to the needs of um, survivors of gender-based violence, human trafficking, uh, whether it be through psychosocial assistance, as I mentioned, legal counseling, but also looking for uh, more medium to longer term solutions, um, including integration opportunities, access to work, for example. Um, and so that's something that we, the United States, um, Governments are looking um, uh, towards building upon in the upcoming year is uh, looking for that nexus, uh, developing a nexus between immediate humanitarian assistance and more medium to longer term development. Um, because unfortunately, as the crisis inside Venezuela becomes increasingly protracted and more and more Venezuelans are fleeing, we need to find those opportunities uh, for Venezuelans, including the most vulnerable women and children included, um, to have that ability to fully integrate into their new um, home communities. Yeah, no, thank you. Similar question to, to Laura and to Tatiana. No, like, we have an issue which is a gender-based vi gender violence in Venezuela. Feminicides are just skyrocketing. Why this is happening in your view, and what can we help to, to mitigate this issue? Thank you. Well, many men uh, in this patriarchal society believe that women's bodies are at their service, men from the top to the bottom. And Venezuelan women experience a continuum of violence that do not stop when they leave the country. Right at the border, they're seen by these armed guards that with this promiscuous look and dress them. Sometimes they do it with their weapons and they grope them, they rape them they gang rape them, they rape them in exchange of money, they rape them in exchange of food, they rape them to allow them to leave the country, or they rape them to enable them to enter to a new country. Men press Venezuelan women for sex, men demand them sex, and in many cases women do not have a choice, and sex is the payment required to survive. The first time I came across the term survival sex, is when I was working with Venezuelan migrants abroad. We talked about femicides, we talked about rape. That's only the iceberg of gender-based violence. Those are the worst forms of violence against women. However, that's not in a vacuum. It's sustained by a lot of micromachismo and micromachismos and things that happen in the lives of women every day. In the Pan-American Development Foundation, uh, we worked in Peru with Venezuelan women. 
and we designed a survey and conducted focus groups and we spoke with women about their experiences. And something that they all share, all the women, was the sexual harassment that they faced. Hey, Veneca. Veneca, the pejorative term for Venezuelan women. Don't you want to have sex with me? Men in their cars drive next to me. Do you want to have sex with me? Men get too close to me in public transportation to roll from behind. A man groped my girlfriend's ass and said, Esa Veneca. Those are the testimonies that we hear from Venezuelan women. A quick Google search for Venezuelan women, mujeres venezolanas, displays women hypersexualized. Venezuelan women are stigmatized, objectified. And we talked about femicide, we talked about rape, which are prevalent. However, women also have the right to move freely on the street and in public spaces. Mm -hmm. So we also need to ensure that women not only are not being raped and killed because they have the right to live, but also that they have the right to live and to occupy public spaces wherever, it want, wherever they want and whenever they want. And some of the things that can be done to do this, first, educate men. We can implement behavioral change-based campaigns targeting to men to educate them on sexual harassment, challenge current masculinities in the region, and promote social sanctions on this unacceptable behavior. Help women overcome sexual trauma. We talked about providing psychological support, group support, and also including cares, care for survivors of rape. Yeah. There's the, you know, uh, minimal treatment for physical injuries, pregnancy prevention, treatment for STDs, HIV exposure. Uh, in general, um, these are some of the specific things that we can do. Educating men, providing care, health, kits for survivors of rape, and help women overcome sexual trauma. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. Let's switch topic a little bit on, on, on this issue of economic empowerment for women, Tatiana. And I think you, you started elaborating on it, and I want to get deeper on, on this issue. Uh, according to a 2016 report by the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, 54% more women than men between the ages of 20 and 59 do not participate in the formal labor market for family reasons in Venezuela. Uh, so, in your view, how, how does women economic empowerment affect their autonomy and why this is important? Well, first of all, it's important because it is part of uh, the basics of uh, empowerment for women. Uh, we've seen how women economic empowerment supports not only uh, self-sustaining uh, and self-reliance for women, but also for the families and it usually improve the conditions of uh, families and, and uh, the, the daughters and sons of those women, but also they are related, for instance, with matters of gender-based violence. Usually, yeah. women that have economic alternatives have um, have more opportunities of living situations in which they are being uh, violated in a current normal situation, right? Well, if you look into the levels of vulnerabilities that we are seeing with Venezuelan women, both inside of the country, but also the, the ones that were forced to, to be displaced out of the country, we see that not only there is, there is a, a change on that sense, the number of women that are the responsible ones for the, for the household 
is growing, and it, it's growing inside of Venezuela, but it's also growing outside of Venezuela, because the, the men usually fled first, there is uh, mm -hmm. all the, the issues on being in different countries, and so on. They are also responsible for the families um, and the, fa um, the family um, that they left behind inside of the country. So there is a, a demand, a pressure, and a responsibility added yeah. to the women uh, from Venezuela of being the economic providers. That said, and as, as I was commenting, uh, one, they usually do not have, because of what you just mentioned previously, their roles were different inside of Venezuela. They usually do not have the same conditions as men to access jobs. They do not have the same type of um, graduation or formation and experience. And they are usually linked to the informal uh, markets. Mm -hmm. They are selling things on the streets, which again, make them much more vulnerable for everything that we were just discussing. So it is very important that part of, as, as it was mentioned, that we see this from a perspective of the short-term life-saving humanitarian support, but that we also are thinking about the integration and the sustainability uh, of these women that, that have fled Venezuela so that they can be incorporated in decent jobs inside of um, the other countries. Um, I think one of the things that we are doing, for instance, is as care, we are looking through this rapid gender analysis, what are the key areas that we could be supporting, both in the shorter term, but also in the longer term. We are looking for um, working with the local governments and in, uh, doing uh, with the, the host communities on how they can provide a, a regularization of the migrants and refugees or the first displaced women and, and, and the population so that they can have access to proper jobs instead of being the informality. All of that in a complexity of the many in, of the in, in middle income countries actually have already their own populations yeah. um, being on the informal economy and that's a huge challenge as well to absorb a new population. So working with both opportunities for the host communities but also for Venezuelans arriving in the country is key if we want to make sure that we have a long-term approach. And we need to have a long-term approach because it's not only a humanitarian situation that possibly will end tomorrow. We are looking on, on this crisis for the longer term. Yeah, that, that's a good point and, and I, I agree 100% with you. But let me play double advocates. What if we don't focus on the long term? What are the con let me rephrase the question. What are the consequences of not investing, especially in a humanitarian assistance approach, investing on gender-specific needs for a long term? What, are, what type of consequences come to your mind if we don't have that focus, which I believe we lack that focus today. Do you agree with that? And, and if we don't change that, what are the consequences? So I agree that overall there is a lack of gender um, approach in the whole of the humanitarian uh, response and community. I think it's one of the things that CARE has prioritized over the years is having a very strong gender approach because we see it is, it is a gap. Um, what are the, the consequences of that? In one hand, we are already saying that these are the most vulnerable uh, population and women and girls are at higher levels of uh, vulnerable, vulnerability. If we don't invest on in a long-term approach, that will just repli replicate throughout time, which means that not only women and girls of today will be the most vulnerable ones, we are basically extending that throughout the years because they will, um, it's not by saving lives, 
which is very important and we need to do at this moment as part of our humanitarian response, right. uh, we will not be looking into what is the sustainability of that person that has traveled three countries walking and you know that woman that has faced all of those abuses that we just commented, how will she survive in the next 10 years? We can, we can provide the short-term assistance and we should, but then we think we need to think about how they, they will, she will survive for the next 10 years. And by her survival, we are also usually uh, talking about the survival of the family because women, and that's um, demonstrated around the world, usually are the ones responsible for not only taking care of themselves, the self-reliance, but they take care of the family's kids, uh, the children, the elderly, and so on. So there's, that's an, one of the key uh, dangers is that we are not only putting mm -hmm. a woman in, in danger, we are putting a whole um, family and community. The second thing is, well, if we continue not to see a gender approach for uh, a long term, uh, we basically will not have um, possibly chances of fighting some of the issues that we were discussing and she was mentioning on the maternal health and the maternal mortality, improving the conditions for, uh, you know, we, we see inside of Venezuela a rise on the, on the number of adolescent pregnancy inside and outside crossing the borders. If we are not addressing those issues on a long-term view, those trends will not be re reversed. And those are very gender-specific issues that need to be taken seriously, not only in the short term, but also on the long term. Yeah. Now, any, any reaction from Rebecca or Laura on, on, on this issue too? Like, why, um, I mean, first, do you agree there is a gap today and should we do more on gender-specific when it comes to humanitarian assistance? And why is it important no, to, to focus on not only short, but long-term approach? on this issue, especially on, on these countries that are receiving an influx of, of millions of migrants and refugees. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree with uh, Tatiana, what Tatiana has said. And um, there, there has to be more done um, as it relates to addressing the uh, unique needs of women and children in this response. And, and I'd like to, to say that um, we work uh, very closely with uh, CARE and PADF uh, on this response, and they're doing uh, absolutely fantastic work uh, throughout the region and inside Venezuela as well, so we're very thankful for their efforts, um, as well as through um, our UN uh, partners, um, UNHCR, um, included the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, among others. Um, and what I will say is um, taking into consideration the fact that we're seeing these increased vulnerabilities among Venezuelan arrivals, uh, the United States government um, is looking to increase, uh, continue to provide humanitarian assistance, um, but looking at it from more of a protection lens. Um, and so that includes um, providing assistance that is geared towards the unique needs of women and children, uh, whether it be through psychosocial assistance, um, legal uh, counseling, um, assisting uh, children, uh, including unaccompanied children, but also separated families, um, among other vulnerable groups. And then, as Tatiana mentioned, um, we also are uh, working with um, uh, host communities, um, and in fact, our assistance includes uh, components uh, that benefit and include host communities, because that's an important piece when it comes to the integration of Venezuelan refugees in, in these host countries, um, as well as promoting social cohesion throughout the region. 
um, and then also working uh, with host governments, the majority of which who have been very generous, um, but helping them build or helping support um, their registration regularization mechanisms mm -hmm. so that ultimately uh, Venezuelans are documented because that document is ultimately what is going to help facilitate uh, Venezuelan um, their ability to be able to access their basic uh, legal rights and services. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay, Laura, uh, I, I have a, a probably a tough, tricky question for you. I, I, I think you can help me and help our audience to understand better. But I, I mean, we're facing, in well, first in Venezuela, we're facing so many type of crises, right? Uh, and, and these crises, in a way, are competing with each other to kind of grab the attention of the international community. So one problem. The other problem is that uh, there's not only a gap when it comes to gender-specific humanitarian assistance issue, there is a gap in general when it comes to humanitarian assistance to Venezuela as a whole, right? If you compare the humanitarian assistance in Venezuela today uh, to other countries in similar conflict environments like Syria, South Sudan, Venezuela is, is really receiving much less humanitarian assistance. And, and you know, we can talk about that um, later on. Um, but, but so we, we have, uh, also we have a, a, a regime, an authoritarian regime in, in Venezuela that is not a lot, well, first it's not recognizing there is a humanitarian crisis in the country and in, it's not accepting humanitarian assistance from the international community. Um, so we have all these problems uh, going on. And so in, in your view, and, and it's, you have the international community listening to you right now, in your view, why why we should decrease that gap, not only overall humanitarian assistance, but gender specific, why this is urgent, why we should be focused on this, and why we, you know, countries um, all over the globe, not only the US, but in Europe, Asia, uh, other Latin American countries, right, that Canada, Japan, why, why all these countries should be focusing on, 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 on decreasing this gap on humanitarian assistance on gender specific too? <laughs> right. Because if we want to have a peaceful hemisphere in a peaceful world, we also need justice and accountability. We have a saying in Spanish, sin justicia no hay paz. And I'm going to talk about the work that is being done by Venezuelan women. It might not be paid, it might not be counted in GDP, but it's women that are leading this work, both inside Venezuela and outside. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the mental health and the challenges that they face while conducting the work of looking for the ones who are disappeared and for the ones who had been killed. There is no greater loss than the loss of a child. And I know this very well because for many years I accompanied mothers who had daughters and sons who were missing or being killed in Chihuahua, Mexico. Juarez might sound more familiar to you because of the high rates of femicides, gender-based violence, and the high rates of disappearances. And there in Juarez, like in Venezuela, and like in every corner of Latin America and the Caribbean, it is mostly women who spend their entire lives looking for those who disappeared and who fight for justice for their sons, daughters, or spouses. Local organizations in Venezuela have documented the struggles of these women and published their testimonies. Maria, for example, is a woman who travels every week to Caracas to demand justice. So does that research shows that the loss of a child increases a parent's own risk of dying 
when the risk of death for mothers increases fourfold. The same research reports that the risk of mental illness is greater for bereaved moms than deaths. I remember a woman once said that if they had stabbed her a thousand times, it would be less painful than mm -hmm. losing their children. And some of them report that they cannot eat, they cannot sleep, because every time they do something like basic, they're thinking about whether their children, their spouses, their loved ones are cold, are they eating. Uh, and I think this is extremely important, the work that women do to actually work on justice and build a peaceful world. Yeah, no, that's, that's important, thank you. Um, any, any thoughts on this? Uh, 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 Tatiana, uh, why? Um, uh, also, I want to get you to another question, sorry. Because I know you're from Brazil. You also have work in Indonesia, in uh, um, Spain, in, in also in Brazil, on gender-specific issues. But, you know, when we talk about Venezuela, in a way, it's kind of out of the norm, right? We, it's, well, first is the most deepest humanitarian crisis in modern history in Venezuela, right, in, in Latin America. Um, Henrietta Refor just said seven million Venezuelans are in need of humanitarian assistance, about three million are children. Um, so I don't know, I mean, comparing crisis to crisis in other countries is, is sometimes hard, but in a way, Venezuela is kind of winning the prize of the worst humanitarian crisis in this region, at least, right? Um, but when you compare this crisis, specifically gender-based type of issues on humanitarian space, to other countries that you have been and that you have studied, what are the key, what are the, the key lessons learned or the key things that pop up in your, in your study and in your, in your career? Um, I think one, as you said, I think it's important to highlight that Venezuela is not only um, the biggest humanitarian crisis in this region, it is becoming the biggest forced displaced crisis of the world. And if the predictions are right, by the end of 2020, there will be more Venezuelans living out of Venezuela than Syrians are living out of Syria. Right. And I, I think that's important to highlight because I don't, I don't believe the international community is understanding the size mm -hmm. and the impact of this crisis, not only inside of Venezuela, but also throughout the region and how that can make the region less stable. Thinking about Colombia that has just went out of a, a peace agreement process, is receiving a massive um, amount of people and how can that can contribute to a very delicate situation already in Colombia. So I think that there's a, a sense of urgency that you were mentioning that needs to be really um, ra uh, rising here that this is not a small, you know, ongoing setup crisis. It is a protracted crisis, but it's not a small, and it has impacts not only inside of Venezuela, but throughout the region. Um, comparing to, and that's the first insight, right? Mm -hmm. We are seeing it grow in a very similar way in some senses of the, the Syrian crisis has, has grown, right? Um, we have done a first rep gender analysis in Colombia in May last year, and we had our teams supporting us uh, people that had worked in, in crises such as Syria, people had, that had worked in crises such as uh, Sudan, coming to help us uh, do our first assessment um, at that moment in Colombia. Oh, interesting. And what they said was that the levels of survival, uh, sex for survival or transactional sex 
and the levels of gender-based violence that they were identifying uh, among the, the Venezuelan uh, um, women inside of Colombia were the highest one that they had seen, even, they, even though they had been in very tough and difficult crises. And again, we do not want to compare and say, this is harder than that. But I'm not sure that people are aware of the depth of vulnerability and expo ex um, exposure that to, to violence that women, Venezuelan women are facing um, in our crisis. We've learned also that innovative approaches will be key to address some of these gender-focused uh, issues. Um, we learned, for instance, we, we did a pilot now in Ecuador of doing cash and voucher transfers for gender-based uh, uh, violence survivors or for women vulnerable to gender-based violence as a way of using a tool of the traditional humanitarian assistance with a gender focus. And what we learned is that even though it was a small pilot and a small amount, it makes a huge difference to have access to cash and use it in ways that these women will be less vulnerable, either because they were paying for rent and therefore not being obliged to sleep on the streets, which is a huge vulnerability, because they could uh, shift to a different economic, um, a different job or uh, informal job and not be on the streets exposed to violence and so on. So we need to be finding and searching ideas and learning from other crises on how to do that. We've just launched a report on how the Syria crisis has shifted gender norms mm. in many cases in Syria. What can we learn from that in terms of sustainability and, and you know, helping change some of the gender norms that we are seeing um, in this crisis? So the long-term approaches, the, the importance of supporting women to have the access to justice and access to um, the regularization system so that they can have access to jobs. All of those are learnings that we can bring to this crisis. I think that finally, um, it's also important to, to perceive that we will be facing this crisis again for a long term. Yes. So working with, again, in, in not only the integration, uh, not only looking into when, when the women go back inside of Venezuela, but how we are providing uh, viable opportunities for them in the countries that they are at right now is, is quite important and is also similar to other crises that we've, uh, we've seen in other regions. And again, having that with a very strong gender focus is important because we are talking about different needs, right, and specific needs. How are we doing providing uh, long-term health assistance for mothers, for instance, or, or pregnant women and girls? How are we pr uh, preventing um, adolescent pregnancies, how we are preventing gender-based violence, how are we supporting the countries that have right now those communities to have things in place, the systems to support gender-based violence survivors, which many times were not there even before the crisis happened and we are seeing a spike. So all of those things are quite important on this crisis. Absolutely. That was, that was great. Thank you. Already, I think we have a good conversation so far. Um, I, I think we have maybe just going to put a question just for you all. Just take you know a couple of minutes each to to get your final thoughts and remarks. I think that the conversation so far has been very rich, um, but we were fortunately um, you know going to the to the end of the of the first panel. Um, and you know I want to keep it very broad. I want to get your your most important thoughts, but. Um, 
as you said, Tatiana, this crisis is not going anywhere. <laughs> this is only getting worse. Um, and, and I think there is a lack of understanding from the international community of the size of this crisis and where is this heading is, again, as you said, is becoming the worst humanitarian crisis in the world very soon in terms of refugee numbers, instead of lack of assistance and other indicators, social indicators in Venezuela are just collapsing too in terms of violence, homicides, uh, maternity, death, and other issues, right? So if, if this is true, if we're not seeing any way out anytime soon, which is, in my opinion, the most likely scenario today, um, what, what should we, uh, I mean, how can we make sure that the international community responds accordingly <laughs> to what's going on in Venezuela and in the neighborhood, right, when it comes to um, lack of humanitarian assistance and lack of focus on gender-specific issues. How can we make sure that broader countries, more countries in the world, including Europe, Asia, Latin America, others, get engaged and, and start helping and supporting organizations like the ones that um, PADF or CARE or others are engaging on. So, Rebecca, let's start with you and then we, we finish. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Um, so, as, as we were just discussing, uh, the, the Venezuela refugee crisis is, is certainly on track to surpass um, other crises, including the Syria crisis, the UN currently projects that uh, the number of Venezuelan refugees um, uh, throughout the region will uh, surpass the six million mark uh, by the end of, of this year. Um, and so that's, that's very important to be mindful of. Um, but I think Tatiana touched upon this. It's, it's important, um, I think, to look at ways of raising the profile of the crisis and awareness around the, the issues um, that are affecting uh, Venezuelan refugees and especially vulnerable Venezuelans including women and children. Um, I think, um, for example, uh, last fall uh, when the uh, EU, together with UNHCR and the International Organization for Migration, IOM, uh, hosted an uh, international solidarity conference in Brussels, mm -hmm. that was a good first step in raising um, awareness and visibility um, around this issue, including among European uh, donors. Um, and in fact, even though it was not intended to be a pledging event, uh, ultimately over $100 million were pledged in, in that uh, conference, but certainly more needs to be done both in raising awareness around uh, the crisis and also um, increasing contributions, including burden sharing, right? As you mentioned, the United States, uh, we have been the largest donor uh, to this response. We've provided over $656 million, um, of which nearly $473 million uh, consists of humanitarian assistance alone um, throughout the region and inside Venezuela. And um, so we, we really do, um, the United States really sees the importance in uh, continuing to advocate for both increased awareness, increased contributions um, from others in the international community uh, to this uh, response, and highlighting um, the specific uh, needs of uh, women and children and other vulnerable uh, populations in, in this crisis. Um, I also wanted to take the opportunity to, to mention um, you know, we oftentimes uh, talk about, um, you know, we're working in 16 countries, and of course, uh, countries like Colombia, who is currently hosting uh, 1.8 million Venezuelans, you have Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, and Chile, 
are um, hosting the, the vast majority of Venezuelans. Um, but I mentioned earlier the Caribbean, and I'd be remiss in not, in not um, um, expanding on that because as we talk about uh, vulnerabilities among Venezuelan refugees, um, it's especially um, it's been especially challenging um, in the Caribbean. There are many Venezuelans there, while the numbers may not be as large as I mentioned, um, but there are many Venezuelans there who are in a regular migratory status, and that is exposing them to a whole host of um, risks as it relates to exploitation, uh, sexual and gender-based violence, um, and children are, are being affected. Um, as uh, Henrietta mentioned, um, UNICEF has been um, really sort of front and center in, in this response. And in Trinidad and Tobago, for example, which is hosting the largest number of Venezuelans in the Caribbean at 24,000 um, currently, um, UNICEF together with UNHCR have established um, a sort of broad um, um, comprehensive education strategy that blends uh, both uh, child-friendly spaces that allows children, Venezuelan children, um, to have a safe space where they can play, but they can also receive psychosocial care, health assistance, um, language classes, English classes, um, and then also um, helping, assisting the families themselves. Um, so. That's, um, I think, a, a, an important model that could be replicated throughout the, the rest of the Caribbean and elsewhere in the region. Um, but just, I think it's important to really look at this uh, holistically and look at the impact um, as we're raising awareness of the crisis that um, this regional crisis is having on all countries um, in the region and you know, the potential impacts to regional stability. Uh, absolutely. Just a quick follow-up question, Rebecca. You mentioned the conference in Brussels. Yes. Um, when, that was late last year, if I in remember correctly. October, correct. October. Yes. Do you know if there's any follow-up or any planning to follow-up again in a donor conference sure. anytime? Sure, and in fact at the Brussels conference, um, the EU announced uh, plans to organize a donor conference. This would be in fact a pledging conference um, for this year. And um, we understand that um, UNHCR, um, IOM, uh, together with the EU and, and other um, UN agencies are uh, currently uh, planning for that event um, for, for this year. Um, again, so that we are focusing on um, raising awareness, but also increasing contributions uh, as the international community towards that response. Yeah, no, I, I, I hope that happens, and I hope they also have some sort of focus on, 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 on the issue that we're discussing today. So, Absolutely. Um, Laura, thank you. Any final remarks? Yeah, quick remarks just to, to your question about how to raise awareness. I think bringing the, the event, like uh, organizing an event like this, it's key and especially bringing the voices of Venezuelan women because they're not only the vulnerable victims, but they are the ones who are leading the change and they are the ones who have been the protagonist of many of the changes that we are being seen. So facilitating safe spaces for them to speak out and to tell their stories. I think once we hear what they're enduring and what they're doing, it's very hard to ignore the situation. So just bringing their voices to international forums so they are the ones who speak out and we listen and we learn from them is a powerful mechanism for the international organizations to learn from Venezuelan women themselves about what they need. And also us as international community, as international organizations also provide safety 
for women who are now human rights defenders and um, maybe organize from the donor's point kind of campaigns to address specific needs, whether it's like a material health thing specific or contraceptives or things that can be measurable too, because I know that's where like donors are going. So I thank you again for this invitation because I'm also look forward to hearing from the next panel to and learning more from the Venezuelan women who are the ones who I learn everything and who are the ones who need to be at the center of this discussion. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Tatiana. Any final thoughts? Yeah, one, well, I think two, two final remarks. One is in line with Laura. It's not only about having the voices of the women um, incorporated on in our humanitarian approaches. It's actually having women leading decision-making, the Venezuelan women leading the decision-making on how the, the humanitarian um, assistance will be done. And that's a shift on, on the how, how humanitarian actors have usually worked. And I, I think that's a call out and very necessary. So we should uh, make sure that they are not only being heard, but they are able to play a meaningful role in shaping, deciding the humanitarian assistance. And in order to do that, we also need to change the way we are doing um, the design of the programs, the needs assessments, or um, an, a, a, with a very strong gender focus, but not only with a gender focus, but actually engaging and letting the, the, the uh, women's groups lead what they, are, what they are doing, which is something that we are doing in Colombia right now. It's a women lead an emergency uh, um, approach to make sure that it's not only, as you said, not only about making sure that Venezuelan women and girls are uh, having their needs met, but they are the ones that are protagonizing the change, and that's already true. So how do we make sure that that's happening? How do we make sure that any donor pledge um, um, conference has a high participation of civil society organizations led by women and led by Venezuela? Venezuelan women is key. So I think that that's one, one important remark. The other one is about making sure that we are putting in place the protection systems needed in this crisis, and it includes, uh, in one hand, all the gender-based violence prevention systems, uh, making sure that the, the women that are receiving psychosocial support, and that they, we are being able to prevent human trafficking and uh, the trafficking of women. There is a data from Venezuelan activists that by the end of 2020, they foresee 600,000 women, Venezuelan wow. women, yeah. will have been trafficked, trafficked or victims of trafficking. In, through this crisis. So how are we as an international community supporting the systems that, need, that we need to prevent that? And, my find, and, the, and lastly, I think there is um, a pledge to, to, uh, or an ask to the host countries to stand up and you know, the ones that are receiving the Venezuelans uh, to stand up to the human rights commitments within the region and to make sure that people have access to regularization, that they are protected and that they are able to integrate in the communities they, they are at. For in the international community, it is about visibilizing the crisis. It is about, about understanding the gender dynamics of this crisis. It is also about continually continuing and increasing the funding. There is a huge gap of funding and understanding that the impacts of this crisis are not only uh, inside of Venezuela, they are not only inside of the, the region, because at the long term, 
this can be a, a huge uh, issue for the, the global for, for all of the global um, community. So we need to be attending that now. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you all again for being here. And from our audience, please stay tuned. We're just switching to the second panel to talk about what just Tatiana was mentioning earlier, the importance of including women in politics and decision-making roles for humanitarian responses, but also for political and peace um, type of efforts. So thank you. Thanks again. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Beverly Kirk. I direct the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative here at CSIS, and we're going to continue our discussion of women and girls in Venezuela. This morning's second panel is focused on the positive implications of including women in the political decision-making roles. And before we b introduce the panel, I first want to introduce a video from Manuela Bolivar. She is the deputy of the Venezuelan National Assembly, president of the Subcommission of Women and Gender Equality and she is one of three women in the Plan País, the National Assembly Initiative to plan for the day after the conflict in Venezuela ends. Let me introduce our panelists here today. Um, Betilde Munoz-Pogosian, she is the director of the Department of Social Inclusion at the Organization of American States, where she leads work on the inclusion of populations in vulnerable situations and on the promotion of the full exercise of their human rights. Her responsibilities at OAS, where she has been for 20 years, include directing work on migration and refugees in support of the OAS Secretary General and member states. She has been very active active in addressing the ongoing Venezuelan migration crisis. Dr. Robert Nagel is a postdoctoral fellow and researcher at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. His research focuses on women's impact on peacekeeping missions effectiveness. Prior to joining the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, he earned his PhD in international conflict analysis at the University of Kent and his research there explored the conflict dynamics that contribute and result from sexual violence, their consequences for international security, conflict resolution, and post-conflict post stability. And our third panelist is Beatriz Borges. She is the executive director of the Justice and Peace Center, also known as CPAS. It's a nonprofit organization that works to promote and defend democratic values, human rights, and a culture of peace in Venezuela. CPAS's main areas of action include the promotion of public policies and good government practices with respect to human rights, litigation before international bodies that protect human rights, and the use of information and communications technologies in the human rights field. And welcome to you all. Thanks so much for being here. The first question I want to start out with for folks who may be watching and may not be as, uh, as familiar with issues in Venezuela as all of you are, what is the situation for women in politics there right now? How active are women on the political scene and in the efforts to transition the government there? Uh, Tilda? Thank you, Beverly. And that's a great question to start with so that we have an idea of uh, the high involvement that women uh, have had in Venezuelan politics and, uh, and the impact that they can have in, in, in the transition or a road to democracy uh, and in politics in general. And perhaps m let me just start with data. 
right? And, or, and, or a disclaimer, I come to this uh, issue from a regional perspective, so perhaps it would be important to um, uh, share this disclaimer kind of related to what Moises was saying earlier, that Venezuela is an atypical case, it's kind of like out of the norm, not just because of the crisis that is currently undergoing, but also because a lot of the issues that are discussed in other countries in Latin America on the issue of women and politics, like whether parity measures are now uh, going to be uh, adopted or uh, whether leadership training uh, is kind of the, the uh, should be a policy by the electoral management bodies or not, are not really discussed as much in Venezuela because the issue of the crisis takes prominence. Not that it's not important, they are actually both important and I think the previous panel you know, close in with a, a, a wonderful reflection in terms of the need to start thinking long term and that the gender issues are equally important as uh, addressing the crisis. But uh, of course, when we discuss women in politics in Venezuela, is with the context or with the background of a complex humanitarian crisis. So if we go in terms of the numbers, data, we know that Venezuelan women are 50% of the population, they are 50% of the electorate, and if regional trends replicate or are you know, consistent, which they usually are, they are 50% of the militancy of political parties. They're very active in political parties. So we cannot say women are not interested in politics because they're you know, devoted to the private, no. There's a participation in terms of their right to vote, there's participation in, in terms of their right or their desire to be part of a political party and be elected. What happens is that this never translates or generally doesn't translate in the representation at the leadership of political parties. We have you know, a, a, a series of democratic forces, mostly men, They're only one uh, is led by a woman. And if we look at the representation of women in the National Congress, it's around 19%. We talk about a critical mass of 30%. The Beijing platform talks about the critical mass. Most countries in Latin America have been adopted quota systems that include a 30%. However, in the Venezuelan case, we're only talking 19%. I think mm -hmm. we uh, understand that uh, more can be done. And maybe we can talk a little bit more uh, later about this, but uh, we are one of the few countries in Latin America that is not, has not approved a quota law, much less uh, a parity law, uh, which are temporary. The quota law is a temporary uh, measure to revert the issue of inequality mm -hmm. in political uh, decision making. Mm -hmm. And parity laws is a more permanent measure to uh, uh, guarantee that what is offered to the electorate, to the voters, include women or men. I mean, depends on how it is phrased, but that's the idea. In the Venezuelan case, we do, unfortunately don't have this because even though there was a 1998 quota law, it was reversed or declared unconstitutional and not applied by the National Electoral Council. So we, are, we now have an administrative measure approved by the National Electoral Council that uh, is uh, 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 adopted ad hoc or, or implemented ad hoc depending on an administrative decision of the council. So just to say, we have had an active participation of women. We know that there's women, and, and you know, the video that we're gonna hear from one of our deputies who's actually leading a recently established commission on gender within, within the assembly show that women are mm -hmm. uh, leaders of change, are involved, are, they, they care for the public agenda. However, that, does, that generally doesn't translate in the representation in public decision making. And why is that? If I understand what you're saying, women are involved, women are present, women want a voice, want to use their voices, but they're not in the leadership. 
what's the disconnect? Beatrice? Well, has said, and I think it's very important to have the space because we are not a, a priority for Venezuela. Even if we are, we are showing as a victim and a differentiated uh, victim of this crisis, we are not on the agenda of the problems. Venezuela has a multidimensional crisis who has a framework of human rights, humanitarian rights, refugee rights, migrant rights, economical rights. And if you have to respond to that, we have to have to be in a comprehensive way. And it affects everybody in Venezuela and women in a different way. And but we are in the spectrum of the victims, but we are not in the space of taking the decisions. And not because we are not working on that, it's because the inequality and the discrimination that doesn't allow us to be part of that. And we have to fight for that. It's not something new, it's something structural in our country, but in this moment, it's like we are talking about the emergency, we can't talk about women's rights later. And we say it's different because the emergency we have to put as a prioritization the women's rights. And that's why this is something that nobody sees. And this is something that uh, uh, women are taking, uh, we are bringing to the discussion because we, are, we have this space in the Women's Day or in November, but normally it's not, this is not a normal <laughs> conversation. And that's why political leaders, women and men have to bring this conversation uh, permanently, permanently to our spaces. And when we have that, something that happened in Venezuela is the discussion is very uh, uh, for men and it's normalized that women women's not, are not there. And this is something that we have to change. Not only because we have to be there in quantity, but also because the agenda of women's rights have to be as a priority priority about our uh, topics. And the humanitarian crisis and the conflict there certainly complicates the effort to get more women involved in the political process. Because let's be frank, if you're worried about surviving, you're not necessarily worried about, can I get elected to the National Absolutely. Assembly? And that's something that I, I think we have to really talk about and figure out uh, ways to bring that into the conversation is the whole issue of the use of time. When we talk about a complex humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, women leading uh, households and having to provide for the private, for their families, you know, they have to line up hours to get some goods and uh, medicines uh, uh, to provide for their families. This is time that they're not devoting to the public life. So, you know, if you have to make a choice, of course you will try to protect those who are close to you and then you know, maybe leave the participation in the public sphere for later. This is, I must say, something that most women, most women and women in Latin America face, but it's acutely felt in the particular case of Venezuelan women, you know, mm -hmm. having to make that choice. Robert. Yeah, and I think um, it reflects uh, the deeply patri uh, patriarchal structures and how gendered the institutions remain. Um, so even in countries where you have quotas or um, parity laws, um, such as Mexico, uh, male legislators, uh, legislators uh, sort of try to get around that by mm -hmm. postponing the important meetings until after uh, work hours. Absolutely. Um, because they know the female legislators have, uh, legislators have to go 
and take care of family business uh, and so on. And that's where the important things happen, right? So it's the gendered institutions that uh, need structural reform um, if we really want to make progress. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about the conflict, I want to follow up because this is your area of, uh, of specialty. I pulled some stats from UN Women on women's participation in peace processes around the uh, globe. Uh, even though women are regularly excluded from that, um, one study investigating 82 peace agreements and 42 armed conflicts between 1989 and 2011 found that peace agreements with women signatories are associated with durable peace. Um, another, another study based on an analysis of 98 peace agreements across 55 countries between 2000 and 2016 found that peace agreements are more likely to have gender provisions when women participate in, in the process. Um, how, does, how can this be a part of the conversation about Venezuela? Because again, as you've noted, women are there, they want to be involved, they have the interest. How do you pull them in so that whenever this conflict is resolved, their voices are there and are heard, and it creates a lasting, a lasting peace in Venezuela? Yeah, I would say uh, to bring their voices not when the when the conflict ends and, and then we have the transition is the time is now. Now is the moment to have women involved in in the in the transition and all the negotiations that are happening mm -hmm. for Venezuela to return to democracy. Um, the, the, the statistics are clear. I mean, if, if you're thinking incentives for the male leadership within the opposition or the democratic forces in Venezuela to think of including uh, women, I mean, you, you're saying concrete benefit, lasting peace. Concrete benefits, a, a strengthened democracy in Venezuela by the involvement of women. So uh, it is not just a moral imperative, considering that there are 50% of the population and 50% of the electorate, it's actually something that is going to bring very concrete benefits to Venezuela. And then the issue that you were mentioning, Robert, uh, or, or was it Bibi, on the issue of content, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's not just having women symbolically. It's very important to have women sitting at the tables in the international missions and in, nego in negotiations. Visually, it changes, normalizes the presence of women in these spaces. However, it has also a very concrete benefit in terms of the issues discussed what is included in the peace agreements, the perspective of women and, and children, because they tend to bring these issues to the, to the conversation. And of, I'm not saying that it's only women who do that. Some men also have a gender perspective and will bring these issues. But I guess you, you increase the probability if you have women participating uh, in these discussions. And, and something as current as the um, formulation of Plan País, this is a process that, that is being conducted by the leadership, democratic leadership in Venezuela, that is formulating public policies or proposals for public policies for a return to democracy in various sectors, like from sports to health to finances and, and the oil uh, sector in Venezuela. If you do, a, you do a, re, you know, a quick review of the content of these proposals, you see a, a lack of a gender perspective. So, and, and it doesn't mean that they're not good, they're excellent proposals, but they can be even better if the voices and views and perspectives, opinions of women, Venezuelan women, are also included. You mentioned something important there, male allies. Male allies are important in any conversation about um, gender equity. Uh, I'm wondering, Robert, can you talk a little bit more about how to get men 
on the side of women and getting them to agree that the gender language is important and having women at the table making, uh, you know, making the decisions also very important. Well, I think part of it is changing the conversation a little bit about um, not often we still equate women with gender and treat men as genderless. Uh, and that's problematic because, I mean, we have a gender, right? <laughs> and, and masculinity and different forms of masculinity and how, that, um, how they are performed and practiced um, play a crucial role in conflict, but also in peace, right? And so starting um, with the children, uh, obviously uh, young boys uh, from an early age on, and sort of starting there, um, and obviously that's going to take a generation, but it's also a process, right? And it, uh, um, coming back to sort of women's involvement in, in peace agreements and peace processes, they don't just need to be at the table, right? But they need to be at every stage of the process, right? From the negotiations to the agreement to the implementation. And as connecting it to the previous panel, it has to be part of every single aspect, right? And whether that's humanitarian, political, economic development, uh, everything has to have, um, I mean, I'm biased, but everything has to have gender at the heart of it because gender is at the heart of the conflict. Are these conversations taking place in Venezuela about putting women at the heart? Something that's bothered me is like we have to justify why women should be there. Uh, and it's crazy. We are the half of the population. We have to be there. And there is not conversation without us that is working for everybody. And that is something important. And in Venezuela, sometimes it's normalized. You see a conversation of just men uh, taking decision for all the country, and women are not dead. As, uh, secondly, uh, in Venezuela, is something that everything is political. But there are women in civil society, there are uh, grassroots women who are working for Venezuela. In, in our case, Sepas is working at all levels, lo local levels, uh, national level, regional level, and international level. And all the levels of the conversation has to be women's involved and has to be taken into account to, to bring a solution for Venezuela. And there are different interactions with women um, and not also as a victims, but also as a leadership. Uh, for example, in, in, we work in a very poor area in Venezuela, in Betare, and we see women there uh, with a high level of resilience, but at the same time completely isolated. Comple they cannot access uh, to the transportation, they don't have <coughs> access to water, they, they cannot, but they are working in their community. And when we work with them, we have to learn how to do um, combine work, not just with, uh, working with them in human rights and empowerment, but also with humanitarian assistance. They cannot learn how to fight for their rights if they have hungry. And this is something that has a civil society who are working with women in rat groups, we are to understand and make them local leaders for peace because we have to change the dynamics in Venezuela, how the powers deal with citizens and with women because the social uh, program of control, we are uh, not free because they have to vote for the government to have uh, food for their family. 
and this is something that the government used in a very successful way. And also, we have an environment of political persecution who affect everybody who descends. And poor women are used to maintain the, the government in the power. And this is something that we have to understand about how it's work in Venezuela. Also, in the civil society movement, there are women leading this process of fighting for democracy. And everybody is desperate because of the situation. But we are working for the right path. We are thinking how to build, how to restore the political and civil rights in Venezuela through elections and to dialogue. This is something that we cannot see in this moment in the Venezuela, but we have to build it. And to build it is know our rights, know and document how they were destroyed, and we see to the future, and we, were, we can do it by ourselves. We need the international community help. It's something that is clue for this moment in Venezuela. But we can, we need to build by ourselves with the presence of women to have a long-term term solution for our country. Two follow-ups on, on that. You mentioned the women that uh, they're, who is representing them now? You were talking about how they're working at the local level, but who is their voice on a national level in Venezuela? Uh, is whoever is representing them actually carrying their concerns to the National Assembly? I think this is a work in progress because we have this um, Women for the leader, democratic leadership, they are working in a, this, this multidimensional crisis and they are start to learn and fight for women's rights. The, the Manuela, Delsa, and all the, uh, also the, the Congress in the Exilon and the ambassador of interim government, they are trying to bring to the agenda of the political decision the situation in Venezuela. But sometimes they are not in a principal discussion and, and other su subjects like oil, economics, security, and we need more women there. We, we, we need more women also. We need to talk with the um, women for the government. This, the feminists, the unite this feminist movement in Venezuela is something that we, we need to work. Mm -hmm. Because their, uh, the rights of women, they don't have political colors. Mm -hmm. We are all affected, and everybody is affected <coughs> in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Even if you are a, a, for a politics, you are a, a, for a barrio, you are for a, a university, you are a professor, if you are a woman, you have a, this affectation, this particular affection. And that's why we have to work together, but this is something that we need to do. We, we need to see not only the lack of right of recognition, but also work for, for put that rights in practice and make that a priority in this crisis. Mm -hmm. On the work, I wanted to react to, you know, going back to your question on something that, that Bibi was mentioning on the working together and how men can be allies in, this, uh, in these efforts of making women visible and ensuring that their perspectives are included. And uh, I always say that the gender equality agenda is not a women's agenda, it's for both men and women because we all benefit when women are included in these processes, both numerically, but also in terms of the content of the decisions that are produced. And then the other kind of like uh, thought that came to mind when you asked that question is the whole conversation, and you know, you were saying that in Venezuela everything is politicized. And, and it's true, I mean, we are a highly political uh, country, you know, the, our, our, our recent past has brought us to where we are, and everything tends to be tinted, tainted by, by, by politics and any conversation. 
Uh, however, on the issue of women's equality, um, uh, there's this conversation whether it's a right or left issue. And I think, you know, for the record, and I think hopefully we all share this, that this is not a right or left agenda. Mm -hmm. This is an agenda of human rights. And, and, and we are all committed to the agenda of human rights. For sure, we at the Organization of American States work to promote human rights. This is what Secretary General Magro is always striving to, to or, or, or pushing us to do, to bring more rights to more people, and especially in the case of Venezuela. Uh, the work on gender equality is a human rights. It's an issue of human rights for all. Mm -hmm. So those two comments. Did you have something, Robert? Uh, no, it's not. I, I, because there's another follow-up that I want to, to raise here. I, I didn't want to cut you off if you did. Um, you mentioned, BB, the international community. What's the role of the international community in helping Venezuela on gender equity issues and making sure that women have proper representation? Uh, I know that it's hard in terms of the backdrop of the conflict that's going on there. That complicates everything, but still international community, what, what's the role? There's so much that the international community can do and has shown to do in other countries, in other contexts, in, in terms of uh, women's representation in politics. And it includes both cooperation, bilateral cooperation that can happen between countries when Venezuela hopefully is at a stage where they can bring interesting experiences applying parity laws in Mexico or Chile, that now is having a, a discussion on, on the matter. Uh, but also from multilateral organizations. And uh, of course, we could, the international community could help on issues of changing the structural roots of, of, of gender inequality that include supporting the education system in Venezuela or promoting social campaigns to change sociocultural uh, 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 values and then the gender stereotyping that tends to uh, enclose women in a very particular role in society. Uh, also, in terms of advice or, or, or um, uh, assistance, assistance uh, in terms of designing a quota law, if that is decided by, by the democratic forces in the country, or a parity law, hopefully, because the, the region is moving towards parity. Uh, learning from other countries and also giving, providing advice, something as concrete as a model law that the OAS, at least the Inter-American Commission on Women, has been working on, a model law on, a, on, on implementing affirmative action measures. But uh, there's also a series of issues that the international community has done in other countries that include connecting women who are already participating in politics via networks and, and, and funding the, the sustainability of these networks because in these spaces, women learn from each other. They share, you know, what did you do that work? Did you design this law that I could apply, that I promote in my particular context? So, Providing and nurturing these networks of political women is crucial also in terms of increasing their representation. And then lastly, perhaps, uh, uh, to what Bibi was saying, strengthening women's organizations that work on the issues, that, on gender issues, but specifically try to promote the representation of women in politics. Because in the particular case of Venezuela, I would have to say it is women's organizations that have been at the vanguard mm -hmm. in terms of promoting these issues. Uh, we actually owe a lot to them, the ones that are still there fighting uh, for, for the rights of women. How can we nurture them? How can we strengthen their, their lobbying skills, their uh, articulation at the local grassroots level? This is something also that the international community can support with. Yeah, I will add that um, exclude that 
Venezuela remains in the agenda of the international community because mm -hmm. uh, everything is worsened. But not only because uh, that, but also because we need to find a solution and not put all the resources and effort in the consequence of the crisis, the humanitarian crisis inside and outside, but also in the causes. And the causes are political and violation of human rights, and is we lost and they destroy our institutionality. And that's why we have to put efforts in solutions uh, in the causes and the uh, consequence. In, and in the causes and in the consequence, women should be priority. Uh, no, because uh, only we are the half of the population, because, because we need to lead that process and because we are more affected for the crisis. Mm -hmm. And in this uh, sense, international community uh, can do uh, many things uh, about in the human rights bodies and also in the political bodies, uh, bodies in, in, in Naciones Unidas and also in the regional bodies. Robert. So in terms of what the international community can do, um, as you said, uh, supporting particularly women's organization because they are the ones mobilizing specifically around issues of conflict-related sexual violence and violence against women. And there's uh, a lot of good research. Um, Anna-Katrine Anna Kreft uh, has done that kind of research combining quantitative and qualitative work in Colombia and uh, showing that uh, women specifically organize and mobilize around uh, issues of uh, conflict-related sexual violence. And I think the international support can go a long way in supporting those uh, domestic movements. And the second point uh, I wanted to make is that uh, the international community uh, has to remain vigilant in terms of if we get to a stage where women uh, are more included, at least on a representative level, um, that it is uh, multidimensional as well, right? That there is an intersection of class and ethnicity mm -hmm. along with gender. Because uh, what Rhonda, for example, tells us is that um, even though we have a higher percentage of women represented in national politics, they primarily come from sort of an elite class and a lot of women actually um, suffer under the more uh, authoritarian regime that uh, sort of gets glossed over by the fact that we have a higher le uh, level of women uh, in the national parliament, right? So vigilant, uh, vigilance in regards to that is really important too. That's a very important point. Yes. No, no, no. I, I really like that point that you make on the issue of intersectionality, right? And how there's so many identities in one, one woman, I guess. And then only those who are in the elite or had certain access to education and, or, or power circles are the ones who are, even then, they, they're struggling to get to these circles. But they are the ones that are making it in politics. The importance of ensuring that the perspective of Afro-descendant Venezuelan women or uh, women who have certain disability are also included uh, at the table. And indigenous populations. Indigenous populations. And then the whole dimension of the um, migrant and refugee women, because eventually Venezuela will have to work on a, on a policy of return migration or tending to the diasporas that are overseas. It is very important also to consider the view of migrant women from Venezuela. And you, you must have read my mind because ah. my next question it concerns the migration. At least 40%, as I understand it, of the 5.3 million refugees who have right. fled Venezuela are women. And that kind of brain drain 
um, has got to be hard on, on a country. I, I want you to think about what's the long-term impact of that kind of loss of population of women as it relates to getting more women involved in politics in Venezuela. If you're having so many people leave and there's no guarantee that, that they'll return when the situation is better, but when you have that kind of loss, that has to have an impact on getting you know, the small number of women in government, in politics right now, to increase even more. And I think that is, that's why it's very important to keep working inside Venezuela, to have this kind of contention of leadership and uh, NGO workings and women's, in women's rights. Because this, sometimes we can think that we cannot work in Venezuela because the difficulties mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. but there's still many uh, women and men working inside the country, doing their work, and we have also new dynamics. For example, I am Venezuelan working in Venezuela outside of Venezuela, and these new dynamics are part of our reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, organizations like Rey Naranja, Dialogo Social, they are uh, organizations by Venezuela working for the future of Venezuela for women's rights, um, it's very important to support the civil society. Mm -hmm. And also for the uh, improve the participation of women, I think the agenda of peace security is very important to, to see in Venezuela uh, because we have to guarantee the participation of women in a full and effective way in the solution in Venezuela. We are looking for a political change and we are, in the future we have a transition, but women have to be prepared to deal with that, just to prevent an internal conflict. Because we don't have this classical conflict, uh, like a war um, internal conflict, arm arm, but we have the consequence. Mm -hmm. It's like in Venezuela, if, if happened a, a war, mm -hmm. and we have to uh, improve the uh, skills of the women to deal with the um, uh, mediation with the dialogue with the how to build political rights mm -hmm. and how to be part of the next uh, part of election in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. this, this, this is something that we are working together in Dialogo Social that is an initiative that is trying to bring this to the table because it's not in the radar of the discussion in Venezuela but um, working inside Venezuela, outside Venezuela, everybody together with these new dynamics is something that we need and use this international agenda of women's peace and security is something that we can use in this moment to bring the participation of women. Um, to follow up on your question about the loss of uh, the women, um, if we f further ask who gets to leave, who is able to leave and who has to stay behind, it's often the women who have care responsibilities, who have to stay behind, right? And they're less likely to have the opportunity to get involved in the political process, right? So that means uh, it entren the loss of those who are capable to leave um, entren further entrenches the patriarchal structures, right? Because there are fewer women uh, capable of challenging the system. And that um, then is intertwined with sort of the lack of legitimacy of the institutions, right? And uh, continued instability um, that kind of can spiral into violence at any point. Mm -hmm. I wanted to react that I think this guaranteeing the participation of women can be, we could see it as twofold. On one hand, what Bibi was saying, they need to strengthen women's leadership. I mean, we know that they're active in their communities. We know that there's uh, women active in their political parties. How do we ensure that they have all the tools, they mm -hmm. have all the, 
uh, training to be able to move the public agenda forward. So, you know, focus on that sort of supply side. And then I think, in, in considering that we have the democratic forces in, in leading at the National Assembly that enacts laws, why not, I mean, I, I would love to uh, have this to be an invitation to the democratic forces to, considering, to consider uh, discussing, seriously discussing uh, some form of, of affirmative action measure in Venezuela. The quota laws have been implemented in Latin America and have proven to ensure women's representation in politics. Why not discuss something like that or even parity? Uh, it, again, democratic forces are leading at the National Assembly and, and they need to start creating conditions for an election to happen uh, and, a democratic trans and therefore a democratic transition to happen. Uh, let's make sure uh, on the, what we offer to the electorate, let's make sure that women are part of that too. And forgive me if I missed this earlier when you were talking about Plan País, but is this, are these issues that we're talking about actually part of the conversation for the day after? Uh, I would want to see more of it uh, in the in the contents of what's being produced in Plan País. Depending on the on the on the sector that you review, mm -hmm. there's more of a, more evident the inclusion of a gender perspective. But in the majority of it, there's so much to be done. Uh, there's a, a couple of deputies, including Manuela Bolivar, who we'll be hearing the video from, uh, that are leading this conversation from feminicides to economic and social rights. But this is definitely something that needs to be part of the contents of mm -hmm. the proposals in Plan País. It, let me pause there. Do we have the video? Is it, is it gonna, or do we have the video from Manuela? It's okay. So only, only a few more minutes and we'll, uh, and we'll be able to hear from uh, Manuela. Uh, while, we're, while we're waiting for that, um, I, I guess I've kind of uh, asked around this, but um, Maduro and uh, Guaido, um, are they concerned about the representation of, of women? Does this come up mm. at all? Well, I know that was honest. a sensitive question, but I feel like I need to you ask know, it. I always <laughs> ask because uh, sometimes I ask to the, the women's in political and also women's, uh, men's in political, and you are not seeing that you cannot do that without women's. And they say, but we ask them to come, but there is no women available. They say that. They don't understand the problematic. They don't, know, they don't understand the importance. And that's why it's important that they may see and have be, this has to be a priority for everybody. Cannot be a space that tolerates the, 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 the no presence of women in that mm -hmm. space, that there is important um, the discussion about what happened in Venezuela. They don't see it, and they see it like a second place, the last place. This is not a priority. They also say that this is a security question, uh, issue that we cannot discuss the women's rights. We can talk about that later. And thus, that's why this moment, the Women's Day or, or other special occasions are the spaces that we have. But normally, we are not on the agenda. And that this is our daily um, Did I hear fight. that right? They don't think that they think women, women's issues, gender issues, are not but a security, security issue? Security yeah. issues are women's issues. Are women's right. issues. But also, for example, Maduro defined himself as a feminist. Is, is how they understand the feminists, that how their policies are dominate uh, women's uh, and don't 
let them free. And we have a legislation that recognizes rights, but that does imply that that rights are fulfilled in practice. In this moment, there is not human right that not is violated in Venezuela and affect in a disproportionate way to women's. And we see that, we feel that, we confront that every day in our country. And that's why uh, women's rights have to be uh, something that we discuss in the solution of the crisis in Venezuela at the center point. Because, and we have to be there not only in quantity, but in conscience. Because if also women sometimes doesn't understand what are their rights, and this is our work in the communities. When they have the, this view of what are their rights, they can fight for it. Mm -hmm. um, this is a whole perspective about their life, the, the projects, in, in, and how they see themselves in Venezuela in the future. The, um, another question that I have about women who are are remaining there in, in Venezuela, uh, the first panel talked about gender-based gender -based violence. And how much of an issue is this in terms of hindering women from being involved in politics? It is a huge is issue. The, the number of feminicides that we've had in Venezuela in just this first part of the year is over 40, I believe. 43. 43. And, uh, and, it, and it, those are the ones we know. Right. Because, the because they don't all get reported. Issue, exactly. The crucial issue on this, and this is a security issue, I must say, a, 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 you know, issue of uh, the integrity of human lives. And uh, if more women were at the table, they would be able to say more, to the leaders, exactly. this is uh, an issue. Um, the issue is that there's no data. I mean, there's uh, official data documenting the, whether, whether there is an increase or a decrease on, in feminicides. There's also a lot of impunity. Of course, we have the backdrop of a very weakened judicial system and where there's really no persecution or uh, enforcement or uh, uh, punishment for these crimes. Mm -hmm. um, so the, that combination is an ugly cocktail for uh, the vulnerability of women in Venezuela. We have had, uh, fortunately, some women leaders uh, uh, like Manuela and others that are bringing this to the public conversation. Uh, there's also resistance and backlash uh, from certain forces within the country, but this is a key issue that definitely needs to be addressed. The, the thing is that also the complex humanitarian crisis that Venezuela is enduring is kind of aggravating these situations of gender violence because I think it brings the, the worst in people and, 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 and you know, just creates conditions for women to be more vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, for being killed just for the fact of being women. Yeah, and I think that really underscores the importance of um, a gender analysis and um, putting gender at the heart of the entire process, right? And um, the examples from uh, the region, El Salvador and Colombia as well, where you've seen increasing numbers of femicides, um, even after, in El Salvador, especially after the peace agreement, right? Uh, where there was no gender component, there was no acknowledgement and uh, implementation of that pers particular perspective. And if we want to prevent uh, the same sort of numbers, uh, then gender and a discussion of masculinity needs to be part of that, right? And let me follow up on that. The, I was going to ask about the issue of culture because it's been a thread through every comment that you guys have made during this conversation. And changing culture is difficult. I mean, that's difficult everywhere. Um, not, 
you know, and in countries that, what I'm trying to get out of my mouth is in countries where there is not an ongoing conflict, changing a culture to be more receptive and accepting of women in leadership is difficult. How does Venezuela even try to tackle that given everything that is happening there? I was thinking about, I think I say, about there's not public statistics, public data about what are the problems affecting to women. And that's why it's very important to support the civil society work because we documenting what is happening and we are um, given, uh, make visible what are the problems with gender issues. And to do this is a way to show how it's important to make this part of the whole conversation. Um, because they don't see normally. If you see a, a meeting for the, the high level dialogue in Venezuela uh, with the opposition and the government, it's completely men. Mm -hmm. If you see the number of femicides, that is, is increasing, but there is no worries about, there is a, a, a context with violence, general violence. And that's why it's so important to show the numbers, to show the situation, to show the size of the, mm -hmm. the, the problem, not inside, but also outside, and have this debate. Something that if you see social media in Venezuela, uh, you see how women are attacked about when we are asking for our rights and how, in the best of the case, they say, we cannot discuss this because it's not the emergency. We mm -hmm. can discuss this later. That's why it's important to bring to the debate, the debate this conversation and make uh, all part of this. Mm -hmm. What's the status of the video? Do we, we have it? Okay. Manuela Bolivar, the deputy of the Venezuelan National Assembly. Hi, good morning. Thanks to the CSIS for the invitation. Thanks to Ariana and Moises for making this possible and to be part of this extraordinary panel and for the opportunity to talk about the crisis and the magnitude of this crisis in Venezuela and for Venezuelans. Um, I don't want to begin this short talk with numbers. I want to share with you history, a history that for me represents the different dimension of uh, this, the difficulties that poor people have to handle this complex humanitarian emergency. To begin, I want to present Mar Eliagni's history. Eliagni is a young woman that lives in a slum in Caracas that calls Petare, specifically in San Isidro. She is uh, 21 years old. She dropped out of school because when she gets pregnant, she cannot continue and she dropped out, never end the school. Right now, she's not working. She has no job. She's alone because last year, Fai's group killed her husband and she never knew the reasons why. To put, it, to put you in context, Fai's is a exterminium group created for national police that even the Michelle Bachelet determined in her report that has this group has to be closed from the police. But the regime doesn't make any, I don't know, she 
they 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 don't they don't care about this and this group is continue existing and operating it's not only uh, behind the arrest and persecution of political leaders but also they are making operations inside the slum where the raids illegal raids and also the detentions and the murders are um, present in this uh, kind of operations but return to the history of the Lianis. She has, she's a mother of five kids. All of them present malnutrition because she has no enough money to feed them. But also sometimes to find money, she prostitutes herself to find more resources to buy food, to buy medicines. She's part of a program that calls Nodriza that bring her one meal with protein to not only for her, also for her kids. She lost last year also her house because in the sector where she lives, one day there was no electricity. There was a shutdown and one of her neighbors put a candle and fell asleep and forgot that the candle was there and not only burned the, the, uh, his, uh, his house, but also burned 70 houses, including Eliani houses. So when the firemen get out to the, uh, went to, to, the, to the slum to get out the, to put out the fire, there was no water because San Isidro has no water since six months ago. So, Eliagni has no house, Eliagni has no husband, Eliagni has no job, Eliagni has malnutrition. Each energy that Eliagni has is thinking what she's going to do for breakfast or what she's going to do for dinner. This is not only the story of Eliagni, this is the story maybe in, of the nine millions of people that for the World Food Program present malnutrition problems. This is a story, this story shows not only is the meals, the food issues, it's also a system that is collapsing. They have no water, they have no public transportation, they have no system, a public system to us to bring them uh, health programs because there is any any option, there is no, no alternatives, there is no opportunities. The difficulties of this crisis is because also the regime doesn't allow to extend, to expand the, the humanitarian programs. For example, the last month, uh, four NGOs were raped and also persecuted for only the reason that they have medicines and they have food. NGOs that are part of the cluster in nutrition and in health, but the regime doesn't care about this. Because if they want the medicine or they want the food, just they took them. One uh, part of these NGOs can have the opportunities because the UN have make works and talk with the regime and can save part of this uh, humanitarian material. But another of them, they have no the, this destiny. Maybe they lose everything, and they have no materials and resources to help the people. So. I want to add it that half 
work have a humanitarian work is a it's um complex it's it's really complex because it's not only that you cannot do that you cannot do that with security you you have a regime that persecute each uh, person that works in humanitarian programs so for, why 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 can the regime allow to getting to the country more food more resources I think the objective of the regime is to dominate the people, is to dominate, is, is to make them only think in the basics needs that they have. It's, the, it's to make that the, the only solution that they have is to be part of the regime. Last year, for example, we can, uh, two years ago, for example, they used the vaccinate vaccinations programs you if you have a child and you want to put a basin a basin you have to show the carnet de la patria that is a small a tiny carnet but um, show that you are part of the regime with this they also do this this system with the food the this system apply also in health programs and each I don't know. It's a solution that are that are trying to getting close to the people. I wanna go back to alien history because for an investigation that made University Andres Bello Catholic University Andres Bello that calls Encovi, they talked that the basic basket costs five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars that are impossible for an employee in Venezuela. For example, Ana Rosario, that he's a nurse, she earns each month for his job, or for her job, $4, $4 each month. It's impossible to buy a basic basket for her family. But it's not only the history of Ana, of Ana Rosario, it's the history of each employee in Venezuela because if you find food, you cannot buy it. So, to end in this uh, uh, exposition to this uh, short talk, I wanna I wanna ask you a lot of things. One of this is there is no solution for humanitarian crisis if the regime doesn't change, because there the reasons that we have this is not for a her her quarter or environmental reasons, no, no. It's a, for a need, political systems that its objective is to dominate the people. And if we want a solution, we need to, to change the regime. In another dimension, if you are not, it doesn't matter if you are a politician or if you are a human rights activist or if you are a humanitarian, um, actor you can be persecuted for the regime for each or any of these um, jobs for that reason we need to be with them you need to be with us because it's not only a fight from the venezuelan we need help we need you be you have to be our voice you have to show not only the victims the magnitudes you have to be with us create more pressure because 
we are working right now today i'm not going with you not only for the coronavirus but also because today here in venezuela we have an important manifestation uh, protest against the regime but it's not enough what we do inside the country we need more help we need more pressure we need more more um yeah more work to to be to to do possible more pressure against the regime and to ending these people the aliani have the opportunity to have an ngo that sometimes help her or help her in a in a lowest level but we need more ngos we need more programs that uh, can attend the people in Venezuela and for that reason we need more also resources to support these NGOs um, I want to end in not only thanks uh, to, to, to say thanks for being part of this uh, short talk but also to asking you need we the Venezuela need help and need help in showing the numbers use uh, the numbers of the crisis but also we need more pressure in the regime to make possible the ending of this system and to return to a democracy and liberty that we deserve and that we need to create the programs to create the institutions that uh, can um, can uh, can support and can bring solutions to the people Thanks for the opportunity, thanks for interest in Venezuela, and please be part of this movement, be part of the pressure that we need to get a Venezuela uh, libre. Hi, good morning. Thanks to, thanks to Manuela for that. Ah, got the audio fixed there. Um, but she essentially encapsulated what we've discussed both in the first panel and on this panel, the struggles of women uh, in Venezuela, both to survive. She described the situation of one woman in particular uh, who was a victim of what uh, the first panel called survival sex. Mm -hmm. And then the, she made the call for inter the international community to come in and, and help. And I just want to, as we wrap up here, get your impressions on what she had to say. Well, I, again, she's one of the leaders in, in, in political in the political realm, uh, speaking for women and also uh, moving a gender rights agenda, and uh, uh, not not just in her political in, in the office that she holds uh, as as a deputy, but also via an extensive program of assistance to women and children, uh, specifically focusing on the issue of malnutrition. Uh, and this is, I believe, the type of leaders that we need to you know, nurture and to promote and, and ensure that they have a voice. And, and perhaps to you know, wrap up this discussion, um, I, I, you know, there's like four key messages that I wrote myself that I need, we need to all know when discussing the participation of Venezuelan women in politics. We need more women in, represented uh, uh, in politics, both in terms of numbers and in terms of the issues and the agenda that are, that are the agendas that are being discussed. We need an institutional framework that would facilitate this. And again, I want to go back because this, I've done extensive research on quotas and parity laws. 
on political financing of women, uh, women's campaigns, it is crucial that in Venezuela we put this as a priority and start creating the institutional framework to strengthen women's representation. Third, we need to demand more from our democratic leaders in terms of having women in the picture. It, sounds, it may sound superficial, but we need women in the picture because it normalizes the leadership of women. It, 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 it makes it relevant, makes, makes women visible, and it's very important that we have, we, we expect more for, for, from the leaders that are you know, leading the conversations at the international level and also within Venezuela. And finally, let's not demonize international cooperation. I mean, there's so many uh, controversies around the fact that Venezuela can receive international cooperation, international support. And, and in this particular issue, both what was covered in the first panel on humanitarian issues, we definitely uh, have to be okay with receiving financial and international support to address the humanitarian crisis. But also on this specific issue of the representation of women, there's so much less, there's so many lessons already uh, are in the region and around the world that Venezuelan, uh, Venezuelan in general can learn from. And it's important that we tap into uh, this international cooperation. Final comments? Bibi? It's a funny Spanish. Sure. Uh, so two uh, very quick comments um, on the message we saw on video. Um, I think the way she emphasized um, how the regime perceives power and how domination is a central aspect of the government's approach um, sort of reinforces um, uh, the point about gendered institutions and how masculine they interpret power. Um, so uh, going forward, I think what is needed is a really a feminist approach that centers the marginalized across um, the sort of intersection of uh, oppression and um, an approach of politics and a reframing and reimagining of politics that uh, conceptualizes, conceptualizes politics as power with, not power over people. Excellent. We have been working so many years to documenting what happened and to hear the, the last panel was for me, you know, a reward that now internationally they know Everybody knows the numbers about our crisis. But this crisis is not just about the numbers. And to final my reflections, I, I'm gonna share you uh, a story that happened to me last week. I was in a meeting with Elvira Pernalete, who is the mother of one of the, my students, or a student of the university I used to teach in Venezuela, uh, who was killed in a demonstration. And she, since that, she's fighting for justice. And she shared her story with different <laughs> members of the international community. And some of the members go to her and say, uh, not just about the number, we don't know. When we, when we hear you, Elvira, we, we realize that we don't understand how much you are suffering. And this is that happening in Venezuela. We are in pain, we are suffering. We, we need assistance. We need to um, alleviate this suffering of, of, uh, as a result of massive human rights violation. But also, we need this company, this help, to find the way to, to resolve our crisis. Both have to be in the same time. Mm -hmm. The origin of the crisis needs uh, a system. 
but the, the future of Venezuela needs to work in the causes. Thus, both are important. In all of this, women have to be priority because we are not there right now. And we have, to, we have this special occasion to do it, but um, as a human rights defender, um, the topic of women is not the priority in any of the international agenda. And that's why uh, opportunities like this have to be permanent. And the international community and all the spaces cannot allow conversation without women's presence. Um, is I just can do reach that. I think this is very worthy. <laughs> well, I want to thank each of you for being here for this conversation, and my hope is that it is only the first of many conversations about this issue. Batilda, Robert, Bibi, thank you so much, and thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.